This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. In October of 2020, in response to an overwhelming increase in reports of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, the government of Ontario announced a funding boost of 3.25 million Canadian dollars to mental health supports for post-secondary students in the province. Or rather, to be more specific, the funding increase was intended to address the inability of existing campus services to keep pace with a world in which, depending on the statistic, anywhere between one-half to two-thirds of older adolescents and young adults were struggling with mental health during post-secondary education. Specificity matters here because many unspoken assumptions are built into the mental wellness crisis as it has been reported not only in Ontario, but all across Canada and the US. One assumption relates to the statistics themselves. Once it becomes the statistical norm for a student to be undergoing a mental health crisis, is this really a crisis of individuals anymore? Is this a situation, that is, which calls for increased funding on a one-on-one basis through resources that students need to seek out on their own? Or does this very real state of young adult anguish at majority levels reflect a deeper cultural pathology? What is the difference between healthy constructive pressure and anxiety in a learning environment and something to be treated as an individual failing to thrive? Are conditions like depression simply a matter of chemical imbalances or does it also matter what might be doing the imbalancing in the first place? Are some of the behaviors we're seeing a coherent response to going through the motions of getting a degree in the world that routinely offers bleak forecasts for the future? Another key assumption here is not actually specific to questions of mental health and well-being, but also shows up around notions of criminal and social justice, two other domains in which we are struggling to determine the correct function, scope, and obligations of a college campus within our broader social contracts. Is a public-private institution like the contemporary university the correct locus of action for resolving major problems in our justice systems? What duty of care does the college have to a population of young people who are paying for an education that many regard as essential to be competitive in the modern civic workforce, and who are sometimes also paying for a place to live while receiving that education? And does that duty of direct care change depending on the level of public investment in any given post-secondary institution? Is the university being asked to serve as a redundant social welfare system, a microcosm of specialized rules, procedures, and programs separate from the standard social contract outside? If so, what does this tell us about the overall society that we have built beyond the walls of the ivory tower? the very society for which a higher education, ostensibly, is meant to prepare these students at all. I suspect that in the course of this podcast, we will revisit the semiotics of the campus often as a key staging ground for many vital humanist issues. But today, I want to focus on a single aspect of the problem, the possibility that, while we now have a wider range of mental wellness options both on campus and off, This increase in human choice has not translated as well to improving agency as it should. 
What if the ways that consumer economy-driven cultures tend to respond to mental wellness might not be the best ways to confront the current crisis? I ask, of course, because it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're going into session, group therapy, together, at a distance, to explore some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the wellness industry. Now, as far as I'm concerned, efforts to make post-secondary education more compassionate are absolutely welcome. I say this as someone who saw firsthand many changes to mental health services in Ontario universities and experienced the need for them as well. My first experience was in 2003 with a campus psychologist I saw at age 17 after spending long nights wandering the city to find the right place to end my life. He believed I was faking to get out of exams and spent the hour I had with him lecturing me about real mental health conditions like schizophrenia. Suffice it to say, I didn't bother seeking help again for a while. I simply had a spectacular disaster of a first year in university while trying to find a reason to live. A few years later, I was diagnosed with PTSD and depression and put on medication that somehow made everything worse. That might be because antidepressants are a bad idea for bipolar, the diagnosis I finally received at 24, but only with great reluctance on the part of campus doctors because I always came to them in a depressed rather than a manic state. One told me flat out that she thought I was trying to trick her because I seemed too lucid from what she understood of the condition. And yet, manic states commonly leave a person feeling like there's nothing wrong with them, they're invincible, they can take on a million projects, so they're fine, they're fine. And they can probably just go ahead and cancel that doctor's appointment after all. But even after my bipolar 2 diagnosis, I noticed how ignorant many doctors were, both on and off campus, with respect to mental wellness as a more comprehensive exercise. For instance, I would mention using something called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT, in conjunction with my medication, only to have general practitioners and psychiatrists alike shut me down with an automatic therapy doesn't work for bipolar. As, as if a person with bipolar could never also need to think about how to improve their mental habits or how to process the traumas that their condition might have created in their lives. And so, yes, what a joy it was to see more informed and integrated health centers pop up during my graduate study years because the shared knowledge of counselors, nurses, social workers, general practitioners, and psychiatrists was finally, finally filling in different disciplinary gaps. A more holistic approach to mental health as mental wellness was at last emerging on the university scene. But was it, and is it, enough?
When I moved to Colombia, I quickly learned that these diagnoses, which had been so critical to getting resources in Canada, had a completely different impact here. For one, in Colombian Spanish, people still use bipolar, bipolar, to mean fickle or moody, and I had to be supremely careful whom I told about my diagnosis. Meanwhile, PTSD, oddly enough, doesn't have much of a direct translation in general use. Can you imagine? Most people I've met here, people who grew up in times of great uncertainty from guerrilla, paramilitary and gang violence, along with poverty, domestic assault and natural disaster, simply shrug and say it's trauma, it's trauma, without anywhere near the same interest in the categorical distinctions that Canadian and US mental wellness cultures consider sacred. What do people here use instead? Obviously, Colombia being an overtly Catholic country, the language of faith often comes up in local discussions about mental wellness. More affluent Colombians also use talk therapy, especially after tragic events, although quite a few of their therapists also ultimately encourage the patients to lean deeper into prayer as a form of treatment. But many people simply have neither the time nor the money to invest in institutional solutions, which is why you sometimes see public service campaigns inviting people to name and reframe their emotional states through small acts of personal grounding, through music and breath and gratitude, or by sharing joy, all low to no cost, and all things that people can do in the regular course of their lives. It's a different approach to accessibility for all, and so for me it raises the question, are there other cultural contrasts that we can learn from when trying to decide what is and is not working in our own approach to mental health? The fun part of having studied other literary periods is that every so often you get to observe present-day events through the lens of cyclical history. In 1859, Samuel Smiles published Self-Help, a book that would sell 20,000 copies in its first year alone and hit the quarter-million mark in the author's lifetime. Over 160 years later, the look and language of books in the tremendously successful self-help genre might suggest a significant leap in the industry, but Smiles' core ideas persist in the majority. Smiles believed that it was the individual's responsibility to uplift themselves, irrespective of original circumstances, and in doing so, to set a good example for the rest. Just as steady hard work, Good, honest character and energetic individualism were all preconditions for socioeconomic success. So too did failure arise from moral deficit and a lack of personal industry. Today, a lot of best-selling self-help books targeting a female audience lean on affirmational language, calling on readers to resist not just reliance on external support, but also external imposition from men, from bosses, from family, from society in general. Meanwhile, self-help books targeting a male readership tend to focus on the part of Smiles' equation most closely related to making money and gaining power. All, however, are united by the core idea that you need to work on you, to know yourself, to improve yourself in order to achieve a better life. And so here's the really sticky part. Many people on the left of the political spectrum, the same people who consider conservatives absurd for their buy-your-bootstrap social policies, 
are still often embracing very similar rhetoric through the self-help industry. Many in progressive circles are no less invested in ideas about the power of self-knowledge, self-care, and individual choice to reframe attitude and outcome. And again, why wouldn't that be the case? It's not as if right-wingers are from Venus and lefties are from Mars. We're all human, after all. And so strikingly, long-term research into human welfare suggests that, across the board, both institutional and independent solutions miss the mark. Robert Waldinger's famous Harvard study, for instance, sought to examine what makes a good life by following men from a wide range of class backgrounds, and he found that the quality of our relationships was a greater indication of life satisfaction than any other. His work is joined by a wealth of recent discourse around similar results, as well as the converse, the deadly and widespread outcomes of what some are calling our current epidemic of loneliness. What pill are we going to make next, I wonder, to fix that? Speaking of medication, too, recent research trends are also causing problems for conventional wisdom around mental health. A recent analysis of the long-term cost-effectiveness of second-generation antidepressants, published in 2019 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, found these medications less likely to perform better than CBT, that aforementioned therapy, for major depressive disorder. And that's just one of many recent studies about the equivalent, if not greater, importance of social connection, to say nothing of studies tethering increases in suicidal ideation to financial precarity, a different but no less urgent form of social estrangement. In other words, we have plenty of research saying that it's not you or me, it's us. Our surroundings, our societies, and how they habituate us into different reward-seeking behaviors, normalizing different forms of response to stressful situations. And yet, in a culture trained to see mental health as a matter of individual chemical imbalances, we've also been trained not to think too much about what might have caused the imbalance in the first place. This is because our consumer economies are highly neoliberal, which means that we're encouraged to commodify our lives in ways that private industry can then address on an individual level through specialized products and services that we can buy to achieve a better standard of living. New industries of testing, new legal definitions for conditions that might explain why we haven't achieved all that we wanted up to this point then sustain this focus on what the individual can do, should do, to rise up out of their circumstances. This is why living outside the social contract of my birth allowed me to experience that mental flip. It's not that Colombia's approach to mental wellness is automatically superior. It's simply that living here has reminded me that these Western industrial labels often mean jack squat in other social contracts. In Colombia, the country with the most internally displaced people in the world, a poverty count of some 21 million, and somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million displaced Venezuelans, many in humbler communities could very well have learning disabilities, 
or test on the autism or attention deficit spectrum, or be bipolar too. But these terms, those mental health and neurodiversity designations have less power in the Colombian economy. And because they have less power, there's less reason for folks to lean into them, to embrace them, and to use them to try to find their way out of socioeconomic crisis into middle-class security. This last part is critical because many in Canada and the U.S. enjoy making fun of the rise of so many new terms for less visible behavioral conditions, but the difference really is systemic. Right now, foregrounding various identity labels is a coherent act in economies where adopting these classifications is often the only way to try to receive a bit of decency, respect, and opportunity. It is simply also coherent that in economies where finding and using these labels has less social value, one simply isn't going to spend the same time, money, or energy in the pursuit of such narrative ends. On the streets of Kitchener, Ontario, I used to talk to unhoused and underemployed people who shared how they were made to sing for their supper in church-sponsored soup kitchens, how they could receive a sandwich or a full hot meal but only after they attended a sermon. Atheists, along with quite a few religious humanists, are quick to criticize such practices. And yet, our secular world has plenty of equivalents. Plenty of situations where we make people jump through hoops and perform for us to have their needs addressed. Have we reckoned with these failings of our secular world? Are we willing to, even if it means giving up the labels we fought so hard to receive and have acknowledged? A society that routinely requires individuals to seek individual mental wellness solutions individual disability and neurodivergence testing, individual accommodation in school and work alike, is a society that is, at best, patching up its problems one person at a time, and at worst, exacerbating the socioeconomic divide between those who can afford the time and energy and sheer cost of individual advocacy, and those who cannot. We should not have to sing for our supper on an individual basis in answer to a systemic crisis. Nor should we have to reduce our identities to these tests and labels that in any given moment offer us the greatest leverage. If there is a systemic mental health crisis upon us, we need systemic solutions. And to refuse to treat individuals as somehow simply needing to work harder on themselves in order to thrive. Thankfully, there is a wealth of other podcasts, articles, books, and related long-form journalism dedicated to rethinking mental wellness within neoliberalism. This last word is so chewy and so potent that I'm going to give you four different approaches to the problem. First, Megan Linton's September 11, 2020 article, Mental Health Under Neoliberalism, From Self-Help to CBT, 
in Canadian Dimension magazine, which, as you can guess, illustrates why CBT is a problem too, because it also focuses on individual change when whole systems have broken down. Second, Anna Zera's May 25, 2021 academic paper, Mental Health Challenges Related to Neoliberalism in the United States, in Community Mental Health Journal, explores the problem in a more pertinent way to people in the U.S. The third is an older piece, Ray Filar's April 2014 article, Mental Health, Why We're All Sick Under Neoliberalism, which introduces a series of work in the transformation section of open democracy. I've included it because I actually found research going back decades on this theme, which was more than a little disheartening. All this writing, all this analysis, and where's the change? But perhaps the fourth entry, Johan Hari's 2018 book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, will prove to be part of a more effective groundswell of response to such well-known social contract issues. Hari also has quite a few excellent talks online about the socioeconomic dimensions of mental wellness, if the audiovisual format serves you better. Lastly, for folks sick of hearing about neoliberalism entirely, Eris Comparosos Athanasiu and Max Haven's academic interview podcast series, The Order of Unmanageable Risks, which is part of the Reimagining Value Action Lab, addresses many of this episode's issues through slightly different terms, like anxiety and capitalism while broadening these questions to include racialized dimensions for our current crisis of imagination and the despair that our inability to dream our way out of this system has created. There's just so much data, so plainly attesting to the danger of thinking about wellness as something to be addressed primarily on an individual level, whether through self-help books or in whole government programs, that I'm sometimes left feeling all the big feelings, frustration, helplessness, hopelessness, malaise. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? I'm sure soon enough someone will find a fitting label and individual treatment plan for this condition too. Let's just hope it's not too late to implement more transformative solutions. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, Wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Thriving.